Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Brian Dalek, one of the producers of the show, and I'll be your host today. This week in the kick, Kit Fox and I will catch up on some of the latest happenings in the world of running by bringing in a few other Runner's World editors, including a story about a very inspiring Spartan race finish. But first, an interview with Jordan Hasse. At this year's Boston Marathon, at the age of 25, Jordan came in third. Her time of 2.23 is the fastest debut marathon by an American woman by nearly three minutes. The race, however, was an emotional one as it came just months after the sudden passing of her mother. Jordan spoke to contributing editor Sarah Lords Butler about Boston, her prodigy-like talents on the track growing up, and how running has been instrumental in helping her process her grief. We had this course that my mom and I would run together, and so I would wake up 5 or 6 a.m. when I couldn't sleep and just go out and run during the sunrise, and I told myself, okay, when you see the sun, that's her, and that kind of was a way to help me through, and um, I've always felt the most calm, and now I feel kind of the most connected when I'm out there running with her, so it's really actually been a good form of therapy. It's a touching and insightful conversation. Thanks for joining us. Before she was even in high school, Jordan Hasse was a running force of nature. In 2004, she set the USA Track and Field Junior Olympics youth record in both the 1500 meters and in the 3000 meters. And the following year, she broke both her own records. And now we'd be here all day if I listed all the track and cross-country races she won and the records she set as a high school student. So I'll just note a few notable achievements. As a freshman, she won the 2005 Foot Locker Cross-Country Championships, running a 17.05-4.5K and was the second freshman ever to win that race. And as a junior, she broke the national high school record for the 1500 meters in the semifinal heat at the 2008 Olympic Track and Field Trials in Eugene, Oregon, running a 4.14.50. As a senior in high school, she again won the Foot Locker Cross Country Championships. Then she moved on to college, where Jordan ran for the University of Oregon, where she won two individual NCAA titles. After graduating, she turned pro and joined the Nike Oregon Project, coached by Alberto Salazar. However, she struggled on the track to replicate her early success, and in 2016, she switched her focus to road racing. And apparently, that is her forte. This past April, she ran a 107.55 at the Prague Half Marathon to become the third fastest American woman in history at the distance. And if you were paying attention to Boston this year, you surely heard about the American runner with the epic blonde braids who stormed across the finish line in third, just 10 seconds behind second place. Contributing editor Sarah Lorge Butler starts with that event in their recent talk. Jordan, congratulations on your Boston Marathon, your debut marathon that you finished in two hours and 23 minutes flat. Uh, not only was that the fastest American debut marathon, but it puts you fourth on the all-time list of U.S. women. We'll get to talking about Boston in a bit, but first I want you to go back to your early days and how you got started in running. 
How old were you and how did it all begin for you? And is it fair to call you a child prodigy? Uh, I, I'm not sure I would call myself a child prodigy. I just grew up just being really active. My parents actually met at a Gold's Gym and they were just super into fitness. So I grew up doing a bunch of different sports, basketball and swimming. My mom was a swimmer and my dad played basketball in college. And uh, we just noticed though that I was really naturally gifted at running. I was beating all the boys in PE class. And when I would play basketball, I would just kind of sprint back and forth up the court. And, um, and I just enjoyed running the most. So in fifth grade, I joined the middle school track team and I won my first race against the eighth graders and just just loved it from there. But just kept things fun till about uh, eighth grade. And then I started getting more serious. We found a local track club and I did some of the junior Olympic events with the USA track and field. And my first uh, national championship was actually in Eugene at Hayward Field and I was 12. And uh, for anyone that knows Hayward Field, it's a huge uh, stadium. And and I remember before the race, I was sitting there with my mom and I started crying and I said, I can't run in front of all these people. And I was so nervous. And she just said, just do your very best. And we honestly thought that I would be in just the middle of the pack because it was the nationals but I ended up winning the 1500 and the 3k and set national junior olympic records in both even though I was so nervous but I loved it once I got out there which is still kind of the case today so I just yeah just fell in love with it at an early age. Did your parents ever push you or were you completely self-motivated? Right. My parents were actually the ones that were sort of holding me back. I had a younger brother and we were super competitive and we had a little neighborhood where we lived. We were on a cul-de-sac with a bunch of different kids. So we were always just out there playing basketball, hockey, whatever it was, just being super competitive. I remember just having competitions that we would set up to who could run the fastest around the house. And so we were just always super active outside. And once I started getting more serious with it, I started running with my mom she would run six miles every day around our uh, around our neighborhood and she she would let me run four miles with her (laughs) up until I was 12 and then one day on Christmas she said okay you can run the six mile loop and I uh, pushed the pace and (laughs) ended up (laughs) running faster than her and then from then on we would start together and say okay see you in a little bit Uh, but but yeah they were never they were never saying oh you have to do this or you have to set a record Uh, Actually, I was really into swimming, and when I did join that local track team, I I didn't really like going to practices. I mean, I did, but I liked swimming more, and then I would show up at the races and do really well. (laughs) So the coach actually wrote us a letter and said, hey, I really think you should commit to this running thing. And uh, so then, yeah, then I started going to practices more. I just did what I enjoyed, and I was very lucky that my parents were always just saying, oh, yeah, you can you know, quit whenever you like. And as long as you're still loving it. And if I would have a bad race, they would say, well, do you still love it? Do you still want to do this? And they were always making sure that I was still having fun with it. So that kept me motivated, kept me going. And I think that was really the key to, to not burning out since I did start pretty young. 
go back to the swimming thing for just a minute because it's interesting to me how many top level runners were multi-sport athletes as kids or in high school were you really serious about swimming and were you good at that I think it definitely helped build my cardio and I continued to do it throughout high school. I saw it as a really important component of my training and I was keeping my mileage low for running but had still the swim practice. So I think in a way that really helped me even now that I run the marathon kind of at a young age getting that aerobic base when I was younger. Uh, but then swimming is strange because when you turn 13 it, it it's just 13 and over for the age categories. So there were always girls that were better than me. But when I turned 13, I was just, I wasn't good at all. <laughs> and I liked being the best, so <laughs> I quit. <laughs> and then it, it was an easy, easy decision to go to running because I was um, closer to the top. So you had a lot of success as a high school runner. And when I say a lot of success, you were the Foot Locker Cross Country National Champion in 2005 and 2008. So that's your freshman year and your senior year. Was there a lot of pressure that came along with that? What was it like to win such a big prestigious race as a freshman in high school? So I... Going back a little bit, deciding on a high school, I'm Catholic, so I ended up going to the private school, and it was sort of a big decision between private or the public school that had a really good track program, and the private school actually didn't have a track team or a cross-country team at the time, or they had cross-country, but not really track, but I decided that uh, academics were the most important, and my faith, and I was valedictorian in junior high and high school, uh, and so I, I said I can run anywhere, and uh, it ended up working out that my coach in high school was actually, his son was a good runner running cross country, and he was a good runner himself, so I had actually really good guidance, um, but I went in that freshman year just kind of naive, just again, just had no idea about training, so he really guided me, and I went to the nationals and thought it'd be great to be top 10 and ended up winning it, and then of course you think, oh, this is great, I'll win the next four years, but then you do end up having those ups and downs, and and different levels of competition coming in. So I guess looking back at my high school career, I was really proud that I was able to come back and win it my senior year and still be up there and kind of deal with all those disappointments. And that is sort of a theme, I'd say, in my whole career of, of well, I mean, we'll get to it talking about college, but just dealing with those ups and downs and uh, continuing to come back, though, and just sticking with it because then you do end up uh, coming out on top eventually. So I do have to ask you about one other memorable moment in your high school career. You were just about to start your junior year, and you ran in the U.S. Olympic trials. This is 2008, and made it all the way to the final of the 1500 meters, also in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon's Hayward Field. And the crowd there memorably chanted at you, come to Oregon, as they introduced you. What was that experience like for you? It was an incredible experience. I was just so excited to be a part of the whole event. I barely got in. They take 30 women and we actually drove up here or flew up here and I wasn't sure I was going to get in until the very last minute and then I did and then made it through both rounds to the final. Actually in the very first round I took the pace out like I <laughs> used to like doing and then my coach yelled at me so the semi-final I, I ran a little bit of a smarter race and that was that was when they 
we started chanting come to Oregon was in the semifinal. I set the high school national record at the time. And uh, yeah, still just, I can just remember I was just shaking and sitting under the scoreboard and I, I could barely make out what they were saying. And then the all the photographers and such asked me to start waving and it was such a neat experience and just kind of exemplifies the the whole track town USA and the crowd and just fell in love with it which is why I ultimately decided to uh, follow what they said and come to Oregon and be a duck. Okay so you arrive in Eugene and um, your sophomore year, you won indoor national titles in the 3K and the mile on the same day. But the titles in cross country and outdoor track didn't really happen for you in the way that maybe a lot of people expected that they would. You were close a bunch of times, but but never broke through as the winner. Was that hard for you? Did you feel like you were living up to the promise of your high school days? and you were just encountering stiffer competition, or did you somehow feel like you were falling short? Right, that's a really good question. I think that every every time you move up to a different level, it's just a whole new uh, scene, and it takes a while to kind of adjust to the new level of competition. So it was definitely hard, because coming out of high school, I could count how many times I lost. I think it was five or six, and some of them were in the mile, which wasn't my best distance, so those didn't really count. And so, uh, I had a really good coach, Marisa Powell, my freshman year at Oregon, and she helped me kind of manage the expectations. And even though I was finishing back in the 4th through 10 range, I was enjoying being a part of a team. High school, I really had no one to train with, so I just uh, focused on the advice of the older girls and uh, didn't really care about losing, actually, which was good. And then sophomore year, I ended up having a couple wins in cross country, the pack. Uh, 10 meet at the time and then regionals and I was third at NCAAs so I was close but um, just not quite as dominant as I think I wanted to be and I don't like to say about others expectations but my expectations are always high if not higher than others anyways so I think I wanted to be dominant as well but you just learn that every race there's always going to be someone every year there's always going to be someone that's that's there to challenge you and I think that over time I've kind of just learned that learned that it's never going to be an easy easy day um it was the same thing when I transitioned to being a professional athlete is took me years and years and it still does It, it I think it takes years and years to be dominant and if you look at the top athletes on the professional level, they're they're certainly not winning every race, and I think that it takes time to kind of learn that mindset. When especially when you're in high school and winning races by two or three minutes, like I was, and <laughs> sometimes I wish I could go back to those days. I <laughs> I would cry when I didn't set a course record, but <laughs> I uh, now I would you know take the win any day. So uh, it's it's just you just have to have perspective though and uh, learn to kind of relish that competition. Because uh, it makes you better, and um, yeah, that's that's kind of what I learned throughout college. And I, I wouldn't wouldn't take it back, though. I think that it really prepares you to one day be really dominant and be consistent, and uh, and really just go go through those highs and lows. And then when you do have the really low times, the the highs are that much better and more special. 
Well, that's a point I wanted to bring up. A lot of young girls especially make a big splash in running, especially when they're young and they're maybe freshmen in high school. And then they don't run as well later on. Either they get hurt or they grow and put on weight or they get burned out or they quit and it just never comes together for them. Why do you think you've been different? How have you been able to maintain your high level of success for you know, well over a decade now? Thanks. I, I've just been, I think, really blessed to, as I talked about earlier, have really encouraging and supporting parents who understand uh, the sport and uh, understood the ups and downs, as well as my coaches were, were really, I, I was blessed that they knew a lot about running and bringing me along slowly. And I was certainly not overtrained at any point, especially in high school. I think I was just really focused and just really listened to my parents and um, my coaches and, and ended up being lucky in that regard. Um, I know that, yeah, just to speak though, to the challenges, it, it can definitely be hard growing when I went into high school, I was four nine, and then I <laughs> graduated at five four, and just really had some, a lot of knee pain and issues. And again, my coach was just really, really good about sometimes we just have to stop workouts and just, um, just come back <laughs> another day. So uh, you just, you just got to keep going though. And I think what I've, what's kept me going is that I've just always had a passion for it. And at the end of the day, you have to love it, win or lose. And sometimes even, even more so be more motivated by loss than by a win. Yeah, that's amazing just to think that you were four foot nine entering high school and you were five foot four by the time you graduated. So you grew seven inches in four years. Let's talk now about your after college life. You joined the Nike Oregon Project here in Beaverton, where you work under coach Alberto Salazar. You've been with him for four years. When did the marathon begin to be part of the plan? When, how much will we see you racing on the track in the future? Well, when I first joined the team, I ran the 10K actually at the outdoor championships and made the world championships in Moscow that year. I finished second in in the U.S. So there wasn't really a plan of, I had actually just moved up to the 10K on the track that year in college so I was thinking that I would stick to the 5k 10k for quite some time uh, it turns out that Alberto's training is secretly geared towards the marathon in a way I remember joining and I had only been doing 13 mile long runs and I had a 18 mile long run at altitude and uh, it was just so hard my teammate uh, Trenier Mosier was actually there and it ended up being a really warm day and I, the last 20 minutes I was just starting to get dizzy I come back to the fitness center and just collapse and <laughs> she's bringing me water making sure I was okay and it's incredible to think that that was only an 18 miler and now I've done a marathon but in a way it's been yes like I said secretly building towards the marathon and I had an injury in uh, 2015 I tore my planner uh, and so that was really rough uh, and after that I came back for the 2016 Olympic trials on the track and didn't run as well as we had hoped. I was ninth in the 10k and 13th in the 5k and we sat down that summer and said uh, we really need to make a decision here what um, direction we want to go with your career and I've always been in been good at the long runs enjoyed the longer stuff so we started doing some longer long runs longer tempos 
and um, tried out some longer road races. I did a 10 miler last fall. And then we said, okay, so um, he, Alberto told me I had to do well at the 10 milers and the halves before I could think about the marathon. So that was kind of my motivation going into the race was that, okay, Jordan, get this right. Cause you really want to run the marathon. And I always wanted to be a marathoner. I didn't think it would happen this soon, but I always said, oh, I think the marathon will be my best event. Cause I've always been kind of just go, go, go good at the endurance stuff. When you moved from college and working under Coach Powell to coming to train with Alberto, was there an immediate jump in mileage and intensity? And then you mentioned the injury that you had, the planner. Was that something that was an overuse injury or was that something abrupt that caused your planner fascia to rupture like that? Yeah, there was an immediate change in the intensity and the pace and basically everything was a huge step up. Like I said, the long runs were much longer and the workouts were just really hard and I keep a training log of of all my weeks and my first week with Alberto, I wrote, well, this is the real deal here. (laughs) And uh, it was just, yeah, it was a whole new level. So I think it took my body a while to adapt to the harder training and um I think it's good though. I'm I'm glad I was kind of undertrained going into it, and uh, and he's he's cautious as well. Uh, with the injury, I it was kind of a freak thing. I just had an entrapped nerve in the side of my planner that kind of led to a lot of different problems, and we weren't really sure what it was for a long time. Uh, so it was just frustrating because it, it just took a long time for it to go away by itself, and I uh, got a couple cortisone shots trying to treat it and just different doctors different things and finally I just ended up having to take uh well it it just tore ruptured so I just had to take three months off completely and luckily I'm a good swimmer so I just kept up the cross training uh but it really humbled me because it was my first big injury and uh it does take a while kind of to get back to that competitive mindset and uh just just again doing the the harder workouts I think you kind of take it for granted and looking at people that were injured saying oh I I I said I've I've raced my whole life since I was 12 it's not gonna be a big deal to jump back into races right away but it took a long long time to get my confidence back and um and kind of get my stride back you think you're back and then a week later you're you say oh I'm now I'm really back and and still it just took took years and years to just get yeah, just get everything healthy and strong again. And now my feet are super strong. <laughs> I work really hard on that and the injury prevention. So it's just, yeah, been a, been a process. So after last summer's Olympic trials, um, you decided that things weren't really working out too great for you on the track and you decide you are gonna make a decision you're gonna go for the marathon. How did you take to the marathon training? Was it much different than what you had been doing for track races and do you have a good group of training partners that you can share the miles with? Actually, for the marathon buildup, I did everything by myself. So I was relying a lot on pacers. When I did track, we would have uh, a male pacer, pacer come out. But for the marathon training, we really wanted to make sure I had a good sense of the pace myself, which I think really paid off actually for Boston. And uh, yeah, I adapted really well. And I just love it because we added in more recovery days and, um, and just really came to enjoy the 
really long runs in the high mileage and it just I think just works really well for me and so I adjusted really well to it that's why I was hoping that the races would go well so that I could end up running the full marathon do you listen to music when you run or do you do anything and where where do you log most of your miles well, I live right across the street from Nike, so it's most convenient for me to just run over there. And I actually, I don't listen to music unless I'm on the treadmill. Uh, I do I do a lot of my PM runs on the treadmill. Just in the fall, it was really dark, and um, so I have a treadmill at my house. And I'll uh, watch, I like to watch Friends. That's usually on about 4 to 6 p.m. when I'm, anytime I usually nap, and then I'll wake up and watch that during my evening run. Or if I have a workout, I have um, some Adele concerts concerts recorded so I think I've tweeted that before that she helped pace me but uh it's really I mean yeah and then you really want to get into that mindset whatever you're doing in training it comes in the marathon so literally during Boston I'm just like singing Adele songs in my head the first (laughs) 13 miles or whatever when I when I was getting tired so it um it it helped to just I think actually to be by myself and do all that training alone because it prepared me mentally to be ready for for any pace I was ready at Boston to run the whole thing by myself if I had to so you're well into marathon training in November and you're on your way to a race in Pittsburgh the Pittsburgh 10 miler and you get off the plane and you learn that your mother Teresa has died I know your family is keeping the cause of her death private, but can you talk about what happened? How did you learn of her death? And what were the the days and weeks immediately after that like for you and your family to suffer such a large and sudden loss? Yeah, thanks. It was, uh, it was really unexpected. Uh, uh, she was my best friend and we were always calling and texting each other so um I I knew <laughs> this sounds crazy but I knew uh, something right away was wrong uh just because she didn't contact me during my layover and um and it sounds stupid to say I mean some most people would be like oh well if she if your mom doesn't call you for like two hours don't freak out but I was like already freaking out um just just trying to contact my dad and my brother and um and they weren't answering so we already landed (laughs) we landed on the plane and I got a text from Alberta just go right to the gate and Pete someone's gonna meet you and then I'm gonna call you and he was the one that had to tell me and uh it was just it was it was really hard uh it's still hard to relive that memory and um I'm very thankful though that he was the one and he everyone at Pittsburgh was just so kind and um supportive and they took me right to a Catholic church and so I was able to see a priest and kind of pray and sit in there and then um I spent the night with a girl, uh, Anna, from the Pittsburgh Organizing Committee, and uh, she flew back all the way across to the West Coast with me to accompany me and flew right back that next day. So they got me back super quick. Everyone, it was incredible, just the amount of support from Nike and Pittsburgh and every everyone, because obviously my family was in disarray, so they all like set up the travel or whatever. Um, I got back, was able to be with my dad and brother. My aunt flew out right away, and um, and yeah, we just um, we were t- tough though. And everyone's just uh, like I said, everyone's been so supportive. I've been so thankful for all my 
family and friends that have stepped up and it just it just made me feel so loved I used to say that my mom was my really my only friend the only one that understood and now I just I if anything I even have just more people that are always always there and and helping me through it and and she's still there in spirit as I really talked about after the marathon and and so it's it's I think that we have a choice to be happy or be sad and um I we I immediately said I'm gonna choose to be happy that's what she would want and uh, otherwise yeah she would always yell at me if I started crying because she would say oh you're wasting your energy for the running so um so anytime I get sad I just think of her and I I feel blessed to have had 25 good years with her and, and we were super close and it was kind of a blessing in disguise because I didn't make the Olympic team so I was kind of bumming out all summer at home with her <laughs> and she was the one that like really picked me up and otherwise it would have been in Rio so I was literally actually home because Alberto was gone so I was home from July till till like two weeks before it happened and we got to go to an Adele concert and just spend lots and lots of time together so it was almost like God kind of knew that uh, not that we didn't spend time together before <laughs> we were always together but um, um, but it it was special that we had those last few months together, and um, and yeah, I'm just just I'll, I'll always be running for her. What role did running play for you in the days immediately after her death? Did you run? Did you not want to run? Were you able to make it through a run without breaking down? Which is, I think, what I would have done. Uh, it was I I still ran I mean to be honest that was the only thing that was getting me through and Alberto was really understanding he said he didn't give me prescribed workouts for the next two weeks he just said I know yeah you're gonna be up and down and and this and that but um I, I landed that next day and my dad knows he understands he's like you probably want to go for your run right and I, I just that was the thing that uh helped actually get me through it was I wasn't sleeping that well but as I said before we had this course that my mom and I would run together and so I would wake up five or six a.m when I couldn't sleep and just go out and run during the sunrise and I told myself okay when you see the sun that's her and that kind of was a way to help me through and um and it still has been I feel I've always felt the most calm and uh now I feel kind of the most connected when I'm out there running with her so it's really actually been a good form of therapy your dad said at the Boston Marathon that the loss of your mom could have totally deflated derailed a different person but for you the loss of your mom has has almost kept you motivated and I think as the racing season progressed and got closer to Boston, you know, he that proved him right. Is he is he right about that? Yeah, he was definitely right. It was it's kind of a weird um, not coincidence, but things had started to go well right before her passing. So I won the 10 mile championship, which I was really thankful that she got to see. So things were going in the upswing direction, uh, which was good. But then it was just kind of, yeah, this whole new sense of motivation that I got to do well for her, got to do well for my family. And it was funny, like I said, I mean, none of not to blame them, but none of my family really paid attention to running, but now I'm getting all these messages from my aunts and extended family, this and that, before races and after races. So it's just, it's actually brought us all together more in a way. And uh, so it gives me more of a sense of, of pride and motivation that, yeah, I got to do well for everyone that's paying attention to this. 
You had a series of really strong races leading up to Boston, not just the 10-mile championships, but your first half marathon in Houston and the 15K championships and then a half marathon in Prague. Um, by Boston Marathon Monday, you were really in good shape. Quickly, how did the race go for you? Were you aware what kind of pace you were on that you were running to 23 pace? Yeah, I had, I was thankful that I had a good series of races going in. So that gave me a lot of confidence. And uh, obviously everyone always says, though, you don't really know how that's going to translate to the full marathon. So I trusted Alberto. He won Boston and he knows how to get the taper process right. So uh, I had a little bit of question on the taper. I thought that we overdid it. But now it's funny now looking back at it, I would have actually done less. Uh, so so it's interesting in that regard. But um yeah, just going into the race, I planned it not going out if they're going to go 220 or 221 pace just because it was my first marathon and I didn't want to blow it. But it ended up working out nicely because the pack sort of all ran together and we went through halfway about 72 minutes. And uh, at that point, I felt pretty confident that I could keep running that pace for the second half and ended up actually picking it up by a lot. And there were times I thought I I actually might win this thing. Uh and Edna made a really strong move at 18 miles though and it sort of felt like we were sprinting and it was still a bit of an unknown with seven miles left. I thought, okay, I just gotta keep my own pace and uh, and if she comes back to me, she comes back to me, but if not, I'm having a great one here. And the crowd was incredible that, that last part. And when I turned on Boylston, I got goosebumps. And I still, I think about that in my workouts when I'm tired. I think, okay, just when I have 600 to go, I just think, okay, you're turning on Boylston. So um, it's, yeah, it's just been incredible. And it was, it was so much fun. And I was just thankful. That was our goal to finish strong. I wanted to walk off saying, I want to run another one, which, uh, which happened. So it was, it was, I was thankful we checked all the boxes. Did you feel your mother's presence during the race? No, I was definitely thinking about about her and what she would say. And I practiced self-talk and visualization. And uh, in my training after she passed, actually, it always turned into we can do this or, or uh, we got this or we believe or this and that. Whereas before it was I, I got this, I can do it. And uh, so I would practice in my long runs. You run for an hour, she runs for an hour. And then whoever feels the best, <laughs> they take it from here. Or you got to be tough. And I was I'm better at uphills or and she was better at downhills so she takes them the downhills and so I was you sort of play those mind games with yourself and uh yeah when I crossed um people have asked me did you kind of plan all that emotion and everything and I, I honestly didn't I had no idea what I was going to do uh, you see people collapsing at the end of marathons or I wasn't I crossed and I didn't know if my legs were going to give out or not my quads are really burning so that's why I kind of like half bent over but my mom would never like me to do that when people put their hands on their knees we would call it the cow and she would say don't do the cow don't be a wimp don't do the cow so I was like okay don't do the cow <laughs> uh, so then I I just kind of bless myself and um I wear her ring so I kiss the ring and um it was like I said kind of in the build-up and everything I was trying to not hold the emotion in there certainly times when I had good and bad days but it was this whole emotional build-up of of everything that I had gone through and it kind of came out right at the finish um and I was able to to see my dad though and my aunt that came so and I saw Alberto so it was it was really a whole yeah mix of emotions at the finish line
did you do anything special to celebrate that day? We, well, the Oregon Project did really well as a team. Uh, Galen was second and Suguru was third and then I was third. So we all just went out to the Fogo de Chao Steakhouse uh, for dinner and I'm a big steak fan. <laughs> so I just, they just kept it coming and then got uh, two pieces of cheesecake from Cheesecake Factory with my aunt. And so I had probably four steaks, two cheesecakes and uh, still was hungry <laughs> after the marathon. It was incredible how much you can eat. Uh, and then I got to go back to California with my dad and um, my brothers out there. So I, I spent a good actually six weeks there and just really, yeah, just decompress. And it was a really nice time uh, just getting to rest up and spend time with them without the pressure of having to train for the marathon. What's next for you and what big goals do you have out there short term and long term? Right now, I'm just looking at a fall marathon, and uh, it's just nice to know that that is kind of the direction of my career now uh, to go with the marathon. And I'll be doing some track races, but not focusing on it. And really, the goal right now is just looking at 2020 and trying to, uh, it's a big goal, but hopefully getting a medal there in the marathon. Do you have thoughts of going after the American record in the marathon? Definitely. I hope to one day. Um, I got to meet Dina Castor at, at Boston, and then I'm, I'm very good friends with Joan Benoit, and I, I got her time in, in the half. She actually, after Prague, she texted me, and she said, you got me, and so I definitely want to get her time in the marathon, and, and then uh, obviously Dina's record as well. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's just, it's all exciting, and I just, I'm very young still, which is exciting, because uh, the top woman, Edna Kiplagod and Mary Kaitani, they're uh, 30, you know, in late 30s. <laughs> so I got, a, I got a long time to go. And so we're trying to be patient. Just to bring it back to something we were talking about earlier, do you get recognized a lot by middle school and high school runners? And what questions do they have for you? What message do you try to impart to young runners who are just starting out in high school? I do. I think maybe because of the trademark hair, I'm not sure what it is. But uh, after Boston, I've got a lot of moms tweeting that their daughters asked for the braids, the Jordan braids, which is really special. And uh, they just ask you, how much mileage should I be doing? Uh, how to deal with injuries? Just those sorts of questions. But my main message is always just have fun with it and listen to your coach and try not to worry about too much of the specifics yourself. Just uh, go out there and, and do your best because that's all you can do at the end of the day. That was contributing editor Sarah Lorge Butler speaking with marathoner Jordan Hasse. And by the way, in case you're curious, Joan Benoit Samuelson, who won gold in the first women's Olympic marathon in Los Angeles in 1984, set the American record for that distance in 1985 when she ran a 221-21 at the Chicago Marathon. Today, Dina Castor holds the distinction of American record holder. In 2006, she ran a 219-36 at the London Marathon. Welcome back to the Runner's World Show. Now it is time for the kick. I am now joined by Kit Fox. Kit, it's been several weeks since uh, there's been a kick on the show. Thanks for coming down. So good to be back. 
I know. Dynamic duo here. I know. I know <laughs> the listeners have deeply missed us. Mm-hmm. Um, Very I've, true. I've missed you, Brian. You've been out a few days. Mm-hmm. One, day. <laughs> One day. One day. One day. It was his birthday uh, yesterday, I guess this week, mm-hmm. since we're recording this early. Yeah, 61. It's number 61. Mm-hmm. You don't look a day over than 14, Brian. Right. Thank you. Um, Thanks. Um, okay, but moving along, Kit, um, despite the birthday, thank you for that. There's been a lot of stuff on the website and the magazine that we haven't been able to talk about on the kick because um, it's been a few weeks. so The running world did not stop no, from not, our absence. never does. It keeps going. Surprisingly, but <laughs> there was a lot of stuff that happened. There was a lot of stuff. That's why I wanted to bring in a lot of our friends, fellow writers, fellow editors here at Runner's World, and they're going to help us distill some of the best running stories from the past couple weeks. Does that sound good? Yeah, we're going to have a kick party, as you put it, because <laughs> you're getting older. A and super kick. starting to use dad jokes, yeah. the, uh, the super-duper kick. Yeah, super-duper kick. Yeah. Now I, I want to bring in our summer intern, McGee Now. Hello, McGee. Hey, Brian, what's up? We last up, heard, <laughs> We last heard you um, on our running quiz, but you've been doing some great stories recently. And uh, this one I want you to talk about, it's about a Spartan race. Um, I know I haven't ever done a Spartan race, Kit. No. You haven't. No. I would probably do terrible. We have a lot of friends who do them and love them. Yes. And we have not been able to tag along yet. Yeah, I don't have a thing called upper body strength. Right. So, so that would be a disadvantage. Um, but Comedic this, is what it would be. Yeah, very comedic. Um, but this one story of this competitor um, is pretty awesome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Tiffany Gamble? Yeah, so Tiffany Gamble is a 27-year-old who lives in Massachusetts. Um, Back in 2005, when she was 15 years old, she was diagnosed with the degenerative neuromuscular disease called Friedrich's ataxia, which basically gradually dissolves your motor skills and often leads people to a life in a wheelchair. So it's a pretty heartbreaking disease. Okay, so Tiffany's disease has put her in a wheelchair. Uh, It sounds like she wasn't very happy with that fate. So what has she done to kind of overcome this adversity? Yeah, so um, her mom, Joan, joined a CrossFit gym a few years ago. And when Tiffany was unhappy with her physical therapy, she decided to join her mom in doing that. So one of the coaches, Sonia Caldas, uh, did an amazing job of adapting CrossFit workouts um, so Tiffany could get into – she could exercise and fight the disease. And because of this, she decided she wanted to complete some type of endurance event. Wow. Okay. So CrossFit and wheelchair, that is insane and awesome. <laughs> yeah. And sure. sounds like she did a Spartan race. Which one did she do? And like, like how was she able to do this? That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So she did um, a Spartan race near Boston and there were five uh, CrossFitters with her, um, kind of helping her go through the obstacles. And the terrain was really rough. It's muddy. I mean, Spartan is hard for anyone, much less, you know, a team who was carrying a young woman in a wheelchair. So the first couple of miles were a struggle. Um, It took them about two hours to go two miles. And so they kind of took a second to decide if they wanted to keep going. And Tiffany said, no way, I want my medal. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, so they kept going. They figured out how to communicate with each other got organized, um, and then they just kept going, and they got to take her underwater and uh, carry her over the infamous fire pit, um, and they finished in just under five hours. Wow. And I guess, I mean, we have photos on our website, and they're (laughs) 
they're pretty incredible. I mean, to do a Spartan race alone, awesome. But to do it in a wheelchair with this team of CrossFitters, it's pretty badass, gotta say. For sure. And the thing I love about this story is kind of her motto, her mantra in life. It, it helped her not only start CrossFit and get through it, but finish the Spartan race and to help her team really and share that quote with us, McGee. Yeah. So Tiffany's life motto is basically, you only live once, go big or go home, which is a great tagline. Awesome. So congrats again to Tiffany. Thank you, McGee, for coming down. Um, If you want to hear more about Spartan races, you can check out episode 34 of the Runner's World Show. It features um, Spartan founder Joe DeSena um, talking about his crazy lifestyle. So we really recommend that episode. And now, McGee, we got to send you back to work. Yeah, back upstairs. Your intern. You've got plenty of assignments. Please back to out. the WebCube prison. Yep. Whoa, <laughs> whoa. McGee sits next to me. It's not a prison. Yeah, it's we because she sits next to yeah. me. <laughs> Thank we you. have a good time in the WebCube, McGee. Thank you, McGee. But seriously, Bye. go back to work. Seriously. Fine. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about in the kick this week actually has to do with nutrition kit. Um, and we've been hearing about some of your recent dinners and frankly, we're all a little concerned. What is concerning about my dinners? Tell us one of the recent ones. Well, keep in mind that it was the day before I needed to go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're just I, barreling through the pantry for whatever you have. Yeah, and so I just had some pasta with, with a little bit of barbecue sauce. Well, yeah, on top. that sounds delicious. Um, so because it wasn't of, as bad as you're thinking. Because of stories like this, I thought we should bring in Heather Mayer Irvin to join us and go over this one story from our July issue. It went up online recently. Hello, Heather. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Heather, I want you to help us help Kit here with this story about mindful eating, but. First, what exactly is mindful eating? So you hear a lot about mindful eating and putting your stuff down when you're eating, but really it's about the whole process and taking stock in you know your food prep, your cooking, and your actual eating. So it isn't just about putting food in your mouth and chewing it 100 times, though that is part of it. The idea is you want to take in every step of that process to really enjoy it and take time to appreciate your food. So mindful eating is not looking down at the bowl of barbecue pasta and realizing that it's all gone. <laughs> I mean... After you're binge-watching Friday Night Lights. Yeah, there you go. You can't binge-watch Friday Night Lights while eating because then you're going to look down and you're like, when did I eat all of this? It's gone, and I want more barbecue pasta. And one thing I should probably add is the expert we spoke with, Sally Powis-Campbell, she's a runner and psychologist, she said that being mindful in everyday activities like cooking and eating can actually translate into better running. It teaches your brain to sort of... You know, appreciate things and take time in, you know, training, rest, and and racing. All right. Let's do this. Can you take me through what are the steps of mindful eating? So the first step is planning. Do you ever plan your meals? <laughs> uh, it is like opening the pantry and seeing what's in there. Not and really. And planning out what's in the pantry and mm. then putting them together. Count? No. So when you... (laughs) It's a hard no. (laughs) I'm sorry. When you plan your meals, you want to think thoughtfully about them. So let's say on Sunday you say, okay, I'm going to plan to make, you know, like a really nice dinner three nights the upcoming week. You're going to go to the store. You're going to get your ingredients. You're going to stick to your ingredient list. We've talked about that before with Brian. And you're going to get all of your ingredients. That's your planning. So you know what you're making and you know the ingredients you're going to get. Then you get to cook. So when you get in the kitchen, you know, 
my husband listens to podcasts. I've got Instagram up. I mean, we're, we don't necessarily practice mindful eating because we're trying to multitask. But ideally, when you get in the kitchen, you want to put the electronics away. If you have a recipe on your phone, put it on airplane mode and focus. So you're going to prep your food. You know, Maybe you're chopping some vegetables. And I know this might sound funny, but you want to feel the vegetables. You want to be the onion. You want to be the you wanna, onion. You want to feel, feel those carrots. Feel the- as you just, as you finely chop them, okay? You're getting it. That's oh. exactly right. And with that voice, it's perfect. Okay. So you really want to unplug, be in the moment. Uh, another really good tip is to clean right away. So like while something is cooking, start doing the dishes because that way when you're enjoying your meal, you're not thinking, oh, and I have all these dishes I have to do or all the pots and pans. You have to do the dishes anyway. And then finally you get to eat. And, you know, it's great whether you're eating for one or you have a wow. <laughs> A dinner meal, that was a, a dinner dig. party. Well, I want this to apply and to everyone. Kit. kit. Okay, fine. You have roommates. Yeah, I do. Okay. But the idea is, you know, you're putting away your phone, your book, and you know, you're taking in the work that you just did. So maybe barbecue pasta isn't the most great meal to be mindful about. But let's say you made fish with roasted vegetables, and you want to take that in, like maybe with a glass of wine, and just savor every bite. You know, it's chewing it. It's really, it's smelling it. It's just taking in all aspects Can of the meal. Can we get a reenactment of what that would, would be like, you eating your fish and veggies? Sure. What's going in, in through your mind, Heather? So I get my plate. Okay. It smells really Ooh, good. Take a deep breath. Deep breath. You inhale the aromas. I look at the colors. I cut, I take a bite, mm, that fish was cooked really well, it's nice and flaky. That's me chewing. Wow, okay. Yep, and then uh, you just, you go, you keep doing that. Wow, (laughs) this is really good. And then maybe you don't focus on, you know, I had this great fish in Italy on my honeymoon because no, that was in Italy and right now this is the meal that you cooked and it's about staying present and focused. I'm gonna practice this tonight. Okay. And you're going to report back. I will. I think on the docket. And so I actually am planning a meal. I'm making butternut squash soup. Very good. I think it's pretty healthy. It's probably going to end up like in a tortilla two days later. But, but that's fine. You you eat it now and then you take the leftovers and you reuse okay, it with something okay. else. But I'm going to savor that butternut squash soup. And I'm going to become the butternut squash <laughs> as I peel it and cube it. Be the onion. Be the onion. That's that's the name of this episode now. Okay. <laughs> Be the onion. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Heather. Thanks, guys. All right. Welcome back to the Runner's World Show. And we're in the kick. We have a few more stories to go over. And joining us in the studio now is Allie Nolan, our online articles editor. Hello, Allie. Hey, guys. Okay, and Ali, um, we brought you down to the studio because of a, a couple stories that have a little bit of a tie to them. Um, they have to do with the police, and not the band, um, but the this police. This is running cops. <laughs> running cops in the kick. Um, the first story, I know you love talking about it. We put it up on the website last week. Tell us a little bit more about an unusual group runner, uh, uh, or somebody who crashed a, a group run. <gasps> 
Um, yes, I absolutely love this story. I love it so much that um, I wrote it and I did all the original reporting because my first passion is crime reporting, obviously. So uh, on June the important 20th, journalism did, done by Allie Nolan. Super hard hitting stuff right here. Um, on June 27th, an unexpected creature joined a group of runners. Um, they were running, we think they were a cross-country team, maybe, and they were on a road uh, in Virginia, Round Hill, Virginia, and they saw a goat. A goat. Yeah, like a goat, like not Kanye, but okay. like a goat. So was it a suspicious-looking goat? Um, was the goat kind of like tiptoeing around or maybe had like a ski mask on or bag with a dollar sign on it? Well, see, that's what I don't really know because they said that the goat was friendly and just wanted to join in for the run. Oh, but the friendliest goats are the most suspicious goats, <laughs> as we all know. How did the sheriff come? Did did one of the cross-country runners call the police on I believe the goat? so. I think Because the that... goat was being too friendly and they're like, this is suspicious. Or disrupting their run. So, okay. yes, the uh, sheriff gets a call. He comes out to the scene and they apprehended the goat, who is later identified as Muffy. Muffy the goat. Muffy the goat. Here's my question <laughs> about the arrest. Did they read the Miranda rights and did they sound like this? You have the right to remain woolly. Anything that you can buy or will buy will be used against you. Yeah, I think that's that that's exactly, exactly what happened. Okay. Okay. Um, Muffy was then placed in the back seat of the sheriff's car. Uh, we have an image, and it's really sad. <laughs> Muffy is behind bars. Yes. So she gets taken behind bars. Uh, they bring her to the Luden County Animal Services Shelter, I guess. They were kind enough to put out a found goat notice. Um, <laughs> so that exists. Here's my question, though. Another question. If Muffy escaped, would Muffy have gone on the lamb? OMG. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That one I did have prepared. That was good, Kit. Thank you. Well, luckily, she did not escape, and she got um, reunited with her family the very next day. Um, I'm hoping that they're training her, though, like having her out doing some laps, because imagine the goat climbing and the uphill races she could do. Oh, I know. I mean, I just I'm so, we got the one, the G-O-A-T pun. <laughs> um, we couldn't get that into the headline. It didn't quite work, but we still, we tried as best we could. Muffy the goat is story. the goat. Yeah. Yes. Except we don't know that for sure. We don't know if she does have a world record, but okay. if she did. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. I just, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that story is awesome. Another cop running story. This one comes from the other coast in Tacoma, Washington. Um, Allie, um, this one, not a goat. <laughs> it's a natural person. Um, tell us a little bit about Jesse Jorgensen. Yeah, so the Pierce County Sheriff's Department has this new deputy, uh, that is Jesse Jorgensen. He's 25, um, and they put out this post that told the bad guys not to try to run from him, because you know why? Why? Okay, so because he was the Pac-12 champion in the 800 meters in 2015, and he competed in the U.S. track and field trials last year, uh, he can run a 146.49. That's what he ran to run the 800-meter conference in his championship year at Washington State. That was his senior year. So really, really fast. That's super fast. Like That's like what most really fit people could run a 400 in. So I'd love to see a criminal run from this guy. Well, so I can't take credit for this idea. This comes from uh, 
frequent runners world contributor Mark Ramy, but mm-hmm. he's always wanted to see a TV show called Running Cops about cops that run when they chase their criminals. I think that Jesse Officer Jorgensen could be an excellent candidate to star in that show. He could be like, yes, he would be like, he could train the other cops. I would sign up to be a cop then. That would be like the most fun thing ever. Mark, we'll give you uh, some credit, but I'm going to take most of the royalties from that TV show idea. Awesome. And we mentioned um, the Facebook post where they were basically egging on any criminals in the area. Um, One line, they kind of, they took a pun from you, Kit. Um, They said, we expect Jesse will hit the ground running as a member of our team. That's a a, a B B pun. (laughs) Thank you, Allie. Um, We want to be sure that you come back. I know that you are now the chief goat crime beat reporter. Yes. For Runner's World. Yes. Um, Listeners, if you have any tips about goat criminal activity, as it pertains to the running world, please send your tips to Allie Nolan. Yes, I will take them all, and uh, I welcome anonymous sources on this subject. Yes. And she might end up adopting said goat, if that's the case. I uh, love troubled goats. <laughs> you like to turn the, their goats' lives around. I really do. Yeah. So, Kit, no kick Brian. in a few weeks. Um, so, we've discussed a great Spartan race, uh, your terrible cooking, but you're going to get better. Hopefully. I'm going to be mindful. You're going to be mindful. I'm be the onion. Be the onion. That's what we're taking away mm-hmm. from this kick. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, goats shouldn't be crashing trail runs. That's what we learned. It's all the important stuff that you need to know in the world of running. In the world, really. Yeah. I think not just running. Yeah, not just running. I think you're everyone needs, well informed. Everyone needs to know about this. Tomorrow uh, around the water cooler, you have plenty of fodder to talk about. Just talk about Muffy crashing a trail run and Kit is now going to be the onion. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Kit. Okay, before we close the episode, I just want to let you know we're taking a short summer break and we'll be back in three weeks with our next training roundtable. In the meantime, we'd love it if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your feedback helps others discover the Runner's World Show and our sister podcast, Human Race, which I have to say has a great episode this week where host Rachel Swaby runs with donkeys. Yes, she really runs with donkeys. Um, And we really appreciate any and all feedback and support. So we'll see you on August 10th. I produced this week's show with Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Alex Ward. We'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.